Today's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 8. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Metheg Amah from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought him tribute. Moreover, David defeated Hadadazer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his monument at the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadazer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought him tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields that had belonged to the officers of Hadadazer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Teba and Berothai, towns that belonged to Hadadazer, David took a great quantity of bronze. When To, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadazer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadazer, who had been at war with To. Joram brought him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord, as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites, and the Philistines, and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadazer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Alhilud, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiarthar, were priests. Sariah was secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and Pelathites. And David's sons were priests. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Well, this is a difficult passage. Uh, so much so, in fact, that of the 12 books that I've been regularly drawing on for writing this sermon series, only three of them actually make a decent attempt to give commentary on this chapter. The two most well-known lives of David, currently on sale in North America, both skip this chapter entirely and have nothing to say about it. And it's easy to see why. It raises some very difficult questions for us. Apart from the specifics of how David conducts his military campaigns, measuring things out, uh, hamstringing horses and so on, which make us very uncomfortable, this chapter also raises wider questions that are challenging for us to consider. Things like the relationship between the nation state and violence, the problem of war in the Old Testament, 
and the question of God's involvement in warfare in particular. So it's easy to see why this isn't a popular chapter for comment. When we work our way through a whole book of the Bible, a book, let's not forget, from the ancient world, there are inevitably passages that require a bit more study in order for us to begin to get to grips with them. Today's chapter is just such a passage. Consequently, today's message is a little different. It's what we might call a teaching sermon uh, rather than an inspirational message. And it's going to demand a bit of hard work from you. It's my intention to attempt two things this morning. First, to wrestle with the specific content of this chapter in order that we would understand this text better. And then second, to set what we learn about the warfare that's described in this chapter in the wider context of warfare in the Bible as a whole, so that we might better understand the many places where war makes an appearance and be better equipped to explain our faith to others. Now, this will by no means be a thorough examination of the topic of warfare in the Bible. For that, you can read the many fine books that have been written about it. But I hope that it will stimulate your thinking on this issue and perhaps uh, spur you to reflect on the many conflicts going on in our world today through more of a biblical lens. Will you pray with me? Lord, we know that all of your word is useful for teaching us, for admonishing us, for correcting us, and for training us in how to live well so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work you have for us to do. Please help us to see you in this text today and learn more about you from it. In Jesus' name we ask this, and for your glory. Amen. In the preceding chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord declared to David that he had been with him wherever he went, and that he had cut off all of David's enemies. And he promised David that he would make his name great and give his people a home of their own, undisturbed. Chapter 8 summarizes the fulfillment of these declarations and promises. But in doing so, it raises for us the challenging issue of the means David uses to bring about Israel's peace and security from the surrounding nations. The chapter begins with a summary of the wars David fought. I have a map here to help you to follow where the action is. Uh, these summaries are not in a strictly chrono chronological order. It may be that some refer to events before David brought the ark to Jerusalem. Others may come later. The battles we read of in 2 Samuel chapters 10 and 12 may be included in the summaries here, or they may be later mopping up operations. The important point is that David succeeds in establishing Israel's borders at the furthest extent they will ever be in fulfillment of the Lord's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. When the Lord first calls into being a people for himself, beginning with Abraham and Sarah, he tells Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, 
for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. To your descendants I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Now these are exactly the northern and southern boundaries of David's kingdom described in this chapter. So in verse 3, David defeats the king of Zobah. The territory of Zobah reaches up to the great river, the Euphrates. And in verses 11 and 12, uh, the nations David subdues include the Amalekites. And the Amalekites' territory reaches down to the wadi of Egypt. These are the northern and southern borders of David's kingdom, exactly as the Lord had promised Abraham. The writer of Samuel is conscious that what he's describing here is the intended extent of the promised land. In other words, this is an underlining of the fulfillment of one of the most significant prophecies to ancient Israel. Now, this land that is promised by the Lord to his people Israel in Genesis chapter 15 is not just chosen at random. There's a reason why those already occupying that land have forfeited the right to remain there. Remember, in his words to Abraham, the Lord said, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. By the time that Israel takes control of this land, the sin of the Amorites, that is, the sin of the peoples living there, will be full. God is gracious. Israel was in Egypt for 400 years, then in the desert for a further generation. But during all that time, the idolatry, the perverse behavior of these peoples, their cruelty and inhumanity merely grew. Knowing something of the God of Israel, still very few of these people groups chose to put their trust in him. So after delaying for centuries, God's judgment eventually falls on them. The point we need to recognize is that David is not here fighting against innocents. The wars described here are the use of warfare as a form of God's judgment on peoples who were not the legitimate residents of the territories they occupied. Central to these summaries are the Philistines, who've been Israel's greatest enemies from the moment that they entered the Promised Land. We're told that to the west of Israel, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Metheg Amar from the control of the Philistines. Metheg Amar is quite likely not a place name. It means the bridle of the forearm. In other words, David took the bridle of the strongest of the Philistine towns. He took control of the strongest of the Philistine towns, which is Gath. And because he had control of Gath, he exerted control over the rest of the Philistine towns. David also conquers the territory to the east of Israel, Moab. To the north and east, he defeats Hadadezer, king of Zobah. And closer to the northern border of Israel, he subjugates the Arameans of Damascus, who come to the aid of Hadadezer. North of Hadadezer's kingdom was Hamath. And hearing of David's triumph over Hadadezer, the king of Hamath is overjoyed that his primary enemy has been defeated. And he sends a gift of bronze and silver and gold with his son to David. And this gift effectively indicates his own willingness and therefore the willingness of Hamath to submit to David's authority. 
And David also conquers Edom to the southeast of Israel, placing troops there to maintain his authority. And related to this is the, uh, the odd-seeming verse 13. David became famous after he, re- after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. What on earth does that mean? David became famous. Uh, surely, after all that he had done, David was famous already. Well, I think what this means is that conquering Edom opens up for Israel trade routes south into Africa and southeast into Arabia. And it's the traders who are no longer blocked by Edom, but who are now able to travel far and wide who spread David's fame wherever they go. Now, by including all of these things, this chapter summarizes the military and political triumph of Israel over all of the neighboring powers. For the first and only time in Israel's history, all of the land promised by God to Abraham is securely in the hands of his people. And the passage asserts that it is the Lord who has done this. Twice in verse 6 and verse 14, we're told, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Now, we should be careful to notice that by saying this, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went, God is not endorsing all of David's actions, just the overall purposes. In fact, this phrase could equally be translated, the Lord saved David wherever he went, or the Lord delivered David wherever he went. But clearly, David recognizes the Lord's hand because he takes the gold shields and the bronze from Aram and Zobah, and the silver, the gold, and the bronze articles sent by the king of Hamath. And instead of using this wealth to finance his own further military conquests, he dedicates it all to the Lord. In fact, we're told that he does this with all of the silver and gold from all the nations he subdued. And it's this treasure from which the articles in the temple will be constructed under his son Solomon. Deuteronomy chapter 17 gives several warnings concerning any future Israelite king, including he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And that passage also warns the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. And this may serve to explain why David does not take all the horses captured in battle for his own use. But instead, we have this strange account of the hamstringing of horses. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And Psalm 33 adds, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. And one, preacher, one preacher addressing this passage argues persuasively that what this has to teach us as Christians is all about David's bold, faith-filled decisions, not to use the treasure he amasses to fund his campaigns, but instead to dedicate it to God, and not to use the chariots and horses he captures to increase the strength of his armies, but instead to trust in the deliverance of God. So David does not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. 
Not having war chariots themselves, the Israelite army, of course, does not want to have to feed hundreds of horses. Nor were chariots any use fighting in the mountainous terrain where many of these conflicts took place. But neither did the Israelites want to leave behind all these war horses that could form the basis of a new a cavalry for Aramir. So when David defeats Hadadezer's chariots, he has the hamstrings cut on most of the horses. And these horses would not die from their injuries and could still eventually be ridden or used in farm work, but they could no longer carry heavy loads or pull chariots. As unpleasant as this seems to us, the only real strategic alternative was to have them all put down. And there were not the simple, humane ways to do this in the ancient world that there are today, especially on this large scale. But of course, this points to the biggest challenge that we have with this passage, exemplified perhaps even more clearly by the execution of two-thirds of the Moabite prisoners of war. How do we understand all of this bloodshed? David brings about the first establishment of God's kingdom on earth, but he does so by violent means. And the passage we've read does not condemn him for these actions. Much of the bloodshed in the Old Testament is clearly unrighteous. But what do we do with passages about warfare like this one? Well, let's begin with the massacre of the Moabites. Translating the Hebrew of the Old Testament presents us with a number of problems. Almost all of the ancient Hebrew that we have is in the Old Testament. So if a phrase only appears once in the Old Testament, then there's nothing to check its meaning against. We can know what the literal meanings of all the words are and still not be sure how to translate the expression as a whole. The same is true of all languages. Uh, today, we say things like, uh, I'm dying for a slice of pizza. And we don't mean that phrase literally. We, we might be pretty enthusiastic about pizza, but we don't mean that they were, we're literally giving our lives in exchange for it. Examples of ambiguous phrases in this passage include uh, the numbers of horses and charioteers and chariots. As I've said, the Israelites didn't really use chariots, so it wasn't a major part of their vocabulary. So what did they mean by chariot? Uh, today, if we're talking about cavalry, we might say uh, there's a tank coming. We wouldn't say there's a tank and a tank crew coming. What is a chariot? Is it the chariot, uh, the wooden bit with the wheels? Or is it the wooden bit with the wheels and the horses that are pulling it? Or is it the wooden bit with the wheels on, the horses and the men inside? And might it also include outriders and accompanying troops, perhaps a total of seven men and maybe up to six horses? Another example of ambiguity in this passage relates to this business of the cord used to measure out the Moabites in verse 2. And David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. The only other use of a measuring cord is a cord utilized for measuring land. The use here has no equivalent anywhere else in the Bible, or in fact, 
anywhere in ancient history. So some scholars have concluded that the chord mentioned here, the expression used, is actually the chord for measuring land. And the expression here really refers to David clearing two-thirds of the Moabite land of its population. Well, that's certainly possible, but it seems to me to be equally likely that, however obscure, this is selective proportional execution. And it's intended to significantly weaken the, the power of any future Moabite army so that peace could reign and war with the Moabites would not simply break out again in no time at all. But even with that military explanation, this is a strange thing for David to do. Remember, David has Moabite ancestry in his immediate family. His grandmother was Ruth the Moabitess. And not so long ago, while he was on the run from Saul, he entrusted his parents to the Moabites. So this still seems very harsh. But perhaps this is David being lenient, executing two-thirds rather than executing all the Moabite men of fighting age. But then, why the cord? Why not simply execute two out of every three men? Having everybody lie down is so unnecessarily difficult. Did it perhaps allow him to include the bodies of all those already slain? Whatever the case, it's difficult to understand what's happening here. And the point is that while we can explore all of these questions, it's impossible for us to understand well the complexities of warfare taking place 3,000 years ago in a totally different cultural environment. We've had an example of the confusion of war in recent history. As we commemorated the 100th anniversary of the various events of the First World War, in 2014, a, a football match, soccer match for those of you from North America, football match was held between uh, British and German soldiers to commemorate the match that was played between the British and German lines 100 years earlier in Christmas 1914 uh, during the First World War. The problem, of course, is that no such football match ever took place. It's a myth. In some places on the front lines, there was an unofficial truce. Soldiers sang carols and even exchanged cigarettes, tobacco, and chocolate. But here's the thing that's difficult for us to understand. These same men who had sung together about the birth of the Prince of Peace went back to killing each other the next day. My point is that if it's difficult for us to understand and appropriately mark experiences of war that are only a century removed from us, how difficult is it for us to grasp the details of conflicts that happened 30 centuries ago in the Bronze Age? Simplistic explanations and wild accusations are not helpful. Now, one thing that the Old Testament makes abundantly clear is that there is no such thing as a state without violence. In order for a nation state to exist, and this applies to all of the nations we read about in the Old Testament, including Israel, 
In order for a nation state to exist, it must use violence. Violence to establish its borders, violence to prevent other nations from taking its wealth, property, resources, even people, and violence to keep order within the state, violence or at least the threat of violence. All human societies require force to establish and maintain their existence. Because of human sin, people within the state and people outside the state want to take from it. Violence or threat of violence keeps them from doing so. Even in a nation like our own, where threats of violence, both externally and internally, seem quite limited, very few of us would be in favor of abandoning all national defense or relying on good citizenship in place of policing. My point is simply this. There can be no human state which does not depend on violence. And this includes David's kingdom, even though the Israelites are the people of God. Now, I'm not saying this is how things should be, you understand. This is a result of human sin and rebellion against God's will. But it is how things are. Notice the record of the key civil servants in David's kingdom, which closes out the chapter. First, Joab, who is over the army. Now, remember, we've moved from external threats to Israel to the internal life of the kingdom. There's a clear change between verse 14 and verse 15. Verse 14, he put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Wherever he went, other places. Then verse 15, David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. We've moved from international affairs to national life. And then we get this list. And the first category for internal national order is that of control over the armed forces. Then comes Jehoshaphat, who's the recorder, Zadok and Ahimelech, the priests, along with David's sons, Sariah, the secretary, and lastly, Benaniah, who was over the Kerethites, and Pelethites. Uh, these were David's own personal troops who protected him and undertook action specifically for him. So three categories of senior civil servants, priests, administrators, and soldiers. And David's kingdom, even though it's under the direction of God, is established by war and maintained by force and the threat of violence. Now, here's the tricky bit to get hold of. The books of Samuel, and in fact, the whole Old Testament, state that God uses the violence by which Israel was created and maintained for his own purposes. God is involved in human warfare. Now, actually, that shouldn't pose as much of a problem to us as it appears to. You see, all human actions are tainted by sin. So if God is going to have any interaction with us at all, then he has to engage with us in the midst of our sinful behavior. Now, chapters like the one we're looking at today reveals that God is involved in the realities of human history, as messy as these are. 
If God only acted when human beings were doing everything sinlessly, then he would never act in the world we live in because none of our actions are without sin. Still, warfare like this seems to us to be so explicitly, obviously riddled with sin that we tend to feel instinctively that God surely ought to have nothing to do with it. And yet passages like this one insist that God involves himself in the evil of war, risking misunderstanding of his character in order to bring good things out of it. In his book on warfare in the Old Testament, Peter Craigie, a Canadian Old Testament scholar, insists God participates actively in the human institution of warfare, which has characterized most of the relationships between human societies to a greater or lesser extent throughout recorded history. And a chapter like this one helps us to see why. As we saw earlier, the Israelites weren't simply given the promised land regardless of who was already occupying it. The Hebrew invasion of Canaan, which is ultimately completed here in 2 Samuel chapter 8, was God's judgment on the sin of the peoples living there. His establishing of Israel as a nation was in order to begin to bring redemption, not only to them, but through them to all peoples. So his purposes in the warfare described here include both judgment and redemption. Good was brought out even of the human evil of war. Now let's push this question a little further. What do we see when we look at warfare in the Old Testament as a whole? It's important that we do this because The Lord hasn't given us only chapter 8 of 2 Samuel by which to understand this complex question. In fact, uh, 2 Samuel 8 comes early on in what the Bible has to say about war. Peter Craigie gives the example of the parable of the Good Samaritan. We can't possibly understand it if we only read as far as the priest and the Levite passing by the injured man. If we do, it's just the account of a mugging that gets ignored. We have to go on and read about the Samaritan to grasp the full picture of what Jesus is saying to us. And yet, this is sometimes exactly how we read the Old Testament, focusing on specific events like the massacre of the Moabites, rather than looking for the big picture in which to set events like these in their proper context. The main message of the warfare in the Old Testament is not found in the wars of conquest. It's found in the wars in which Israel is defeated, in which Israel is judged for her unfaithfulness to God. What we learn from warfare in the Old Testament is not that might is right, but as we might be be tempted to conclude uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 8, But instead that, as the Christian philosopher Jacques Ellul puts it, violence begets violence, nothing else. The violence involved in the establishment of the state did not lead to peace. It led to the use of violence in defending the state. And the violence employed in the defense of the state did not result in a lasting peace. It resulted in the violence of greater states, the Assyrians and later the Babylonians, leading to the defeat of Israel. 
And what's astonishing is that it was in Israel's defeat that the conditions were created where God could promise uh, through the prophet Ezekiel to give his people a new heart, to cleanse them from their sin, to put his spirit within them and to move them to keep his laws. It was in defeat in war that those conditions were created. One important thing to recognize is the place of this chapter in the message of the Bible. The scriptures demonstrate what we call progressive revelation. As time passes, people are able to understand progressively more of God's revelation of himself. This is common, of course, to all kinds of learning. Uh, For example, in mathematics, we we don't learn calculus in kindergarten. We begin by learning to count to 10. Our math teachers progressively reveal more and more mathematical knowledge to us. Uh, Sometimes we're resistant to learn anymore. Some lessons we find very hard to learn. And so it is, according to the Bible, for us to learn about the character of God. When the Israelites first enter the promised land, their view of war is like that of the other nations. Violence is largely unquestioned. Gradually, we see less inclination toward the extremes of conflict. So in this chapter, some scholars, as I've said, see the execution of two-thirds of the Moabite army as leniency or mercy when compared with the option of total annihilation. As the Old Testament progresses, violence done by Israel gives way more and more to violence done to Israel. And the prophets try to show Israel that God can be found even more clearly when they're on the receiving end of oppression rather than when they're doling it out. Ultimately, of course, the whole issue of war is turned on its head by Jesus. He teaches his followers to do good to those who seek to harm them. In the context of the the daily arbitrary threats to life of Roman military occupation, he says the most extraordinary things. Like, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them also the other cheek. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And have you noticed the reason Jesus gives for loving your enemies? That you may be children of your Father in heaven, that you may act like God acts. Then he gives his own life on a Roman cross to demonstrate exactly what God's character is. Jesus has no problem with the God of the Old Testament But time and again, he shows people that they mustn't be too hasty in interpreting what they've read about him. We mustn't forget then that the events of the Old Testament are part of this progressive revelation of the character of God and God's will for his people. It's not, you see, that God has changed. It's that we have. 
It's our ability to understand and respond to the character of God that we see progressively revealed in the Scriptures. And ultimately, our ability to understand God is transformed by Jesus' death on the cross and his gift to us of the Holy Spirit who forms the character of God within us. Finally, and I do mean that, finally, when we take the whole Bible as our context, we see that God's ultimate purpose for humankind is the coming of his kingdom. David's kingdom is the first manifestation of the kingdom of God in human history. That's what uh, 2 Samuel 8 marks. That's why it's an important chapter. But David's kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, was a failure. It did not achieve the redemption of humankind. It was only a partial fulfillment pointing to a greater fulfillment to come. And it shows us that redemption is not going to be found in developing the ideal human society. No human society, even one based on the guidance of God, will ever succeed. Only God's own rule, direct and unmediated, made possible by Jesus, only that will do. The violence of the Old Testament demonstrates our desperate need for the kingdom of God. And Peter Craigie argues that the establishment of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus reveals to us a new understanding of violence. The tables are turned. Whereas the old kingdom was established by the use of violence, the new kingdom was established by the receipt of violence. God the warrior becomes the crucified God, the one who receives in himself the full force of human violence. But the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross is also an act of conquest. It is the conquest of evil, the defeat of principalities and powers. In that lies the new principle of the kingdom established by Jesus. Its strength lies not in the exercise of violence, but in the humble act of submission to violence. So the warfare of the Old Testament, the warfare which is endemic to all human society, even that seeking after God, prepares the way for a different kind of kingdom, one established and maintained through the suffering of the king. The kingdom of David, summarized so positively in 2 Samuel 8, in context is in some ways a deeply tragic story. However preliminary its form, the kingdom of God came on earth. But it lasted only a few years. It was not built upon, extended, nurtured, shared, or developed. Instead, it was abandoned. And yet, David's kingdom is still, in some ways, the prototype, ultimately redeemed by God. So let me close with the famous words of the prophet Isaiah about this kingdom. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.